Hello and welcome to Talking Tachlis. I'm Uri. And I'm Rifki. In this podcast, we'll talk about things related to Jewish life and life in general. We're here at the Drive-In Productions studio in the heart of New York City, and we are sponsored this week by Drive-In Productions, New York's premier film production studio. Okay, so Rifki, why don't you tell us about our first topic? Sure. This week, Echo Yanka, a professor at the Cardozo School of Law, published a piece in the New York Times provocatively titled, Can My Children Be Friends with White People? Yanka argues, and I quote, Donald Trump's election has made it clear that I will teach my boys the lesson generations old. I will teach them to be cautious. I will teach them suspicion. And I will teach them distrust. Much sooner than I thought I would, I will have to discuss with my boys whether they can truly be friends with white people. He continues, of course, the rise of this president has broken bonds on all sides. But for people of color, the stakes are different. Imagining we can now be friends across this political line is asking us to ignore our safety and that of our children, to abandon personal regard and self-worth. His election and the year that has followed have fixed the awful thought in my mind too familiar to black Americans. You can't trust these people. White faces are swept together, ominous anxiety behind every chance encounter at the airport or smiling white cashier. If they are not clearly allies, they will seem unsafe to me. End quote. Yanka's basic argument is that systemic racism exists, and he won't let his kids be in this position in which they might slash will get hurt until things change, if they ever do. The essay is deeply personal, and no matter what, you have to feel for this man. But Uri, let's put aside the premise for a second. What do you think about Yanka's tactics for how to deal with this issue? Well, I actually got a chance to meet Professor Yanka recently on a project I was working on. And in the brief interaction that we had, he seemed very friendly, seemed like a really nice guy. Um, But I'm very disturbed by this article, and I completely understand where he's coming from, and he's not the only one to say things like this. But I honestly just don't understand why, if he truly wants things to change and get better, why he's choosing to take a tactic of saying... Things are terrible. They've always been terrible. They're getting worse and there's no hope. And, you know, my child cannot even be friends with a white person because every white person just wants to harm us in some way. He's clearly not saying every white person, right? He says he talks explicitly about his friends, about people who uh, I think he talks some about of his like best God friends are parents. white. Yeah, exactly. He says, among my dearest friends, the wedding party and children's godparents variety, many are white. But these are the friends who have marched in protest, rushed to airports to protest the president's travel ban. People have shared the risks required by strength and decency. His argument is not white people are awful and therefore I don't want my kids to be messed up with those people. His argument is at this point, he's so disillusioned. He's saying that white people have to prove themselves. He's not just going to trust people anymore. So, right. So it's not, apparently it's not even enough to have voted for Hillary or Bernie or whoever it's, you have to have gone to a certain number of protests and you have to have published, I guess, a certain number of op-eds talking about this in order to prove your credentials. Is that what he's saying? Well, you're taking that a little far. But the idea, <laughs> I think that idea feels kind of reasonable to me. He's so scared and unhappy at this point, And he's looking around and saying, I'm not comfortable just trusting people. And you can't tell me that I should because I should be turning the other cheek and I should just be assuming well, no, everyone is I, right I don't think the people others, are trying to hurt me that's I don't how think, he really feels i don't think somebody who would be disagreeing with him would say why don't you just ignore all of this and just be friends with these white people anyway i think the counter argument is yeah 
let's talk about these problems and let's try to think of a way to fix it. And like, let's not work with the assumption that tens of millions of people in America who happen to be white are these evil racist people because they're not protesting Trump in the airports. I don't think he's saying each one of these people is racist. I think he's saying, I'm not going to whitewash this for my kids and say, oh, they're all amazing. They're all amazing. When the truth is that I look around and I don't feel comfortable anymore. It could very well be that, you know, we live in New York City, right? Realistically, I imagine that if he's walking around New York City, most of the people that he's seeing are people who are quote unquote on his side. But he's saying he feels so uncomfortable that he doesn't feel like he can just trust that fact anymore. Well, I actually find it interesting because he talks about his upbringing and I don't know where exactly he grew up, but he talks about being a small college Town. I think he went to Michigan. So in my uh, head, that means he's okay. from the Midwest. <laughs> and, and, and he basically said it was it was relatively fine overall. Uh, you know, he, he says here and there, but basically it was okay. So I guess what he, he seems to be implying that things have gotten worse, which I think is a little bit, you know, or not he's the... gotten less naive. Okay, is that do you think that's what it is? That it was it was this bad all along because to say that things have gotten worse, I mean, I'm basing if, the truth is I don't think he said anything explicitly. I'm basing this on Tanasi Coates, who also writes similarly in these letters to his children about distrusting people. And Tanasi Coates is very clear that he does not think that things are so fundamentally worse than they were before. It's just more obvious. Yeah, I mean, honestly, when I read this article, I my impression was he was purposely. Um, provocative in the title and in, in the content about what he's telling his son in order to get published and in yeah, order to I mean, get attention. But you know what? I, I don't think it's just, I don't think it's okay to say, oh, that's just media because I think what he's saying is really damaging and just really unhelpful to any kind of improvements. And, and just to, to, to do a double standard kind of call out, if Israelis were teaching their children to, to never trust Palestinians and to never to say no matter what happens in the future, uh, you're just not going to be able to be friends with them. I think if that was in a textbook or, or some prominent Israeli said something like that, they would be getting a lot of pushback, a lot of criticism. And I think it's basically the same thing that we're here that we're seeing right here to say to a child, the whole point of like, you know, that represents the future that represents the next generation. And he's basically saying if you take him at his word, he's saying there's no hope for the future. When he's making the argument that a friendship is something more substantive than just you know, a neighbor or a friendly person that you say hi to, a friendship is much deeper and based on really seeing the other person, really trying to work together with the other person. It's not crazy to make that analogy about Israelis and Palestinians. Israelis and Palestinians can only truly have a friendship if they're willing to have a serious engagement. So for for an Israeli parent to say that to their Israeli child, that I'm, you're, they're not sure about, you know, the intentions of everyone to really be looking for a really serious friendship in a real way i don't think is crazy i don't want to get into that I, yeah okay right we don't, but not, that's for a different discussion but i think the difference is if you're going to describe the, the situation in israel and say like you know friendships seem to be almost impossible like that might be factually true but it's a very different thing to tell your children you will never be able to be friends with these people like that is a much more extreme thing and that's not describing the re the current reality that's saying what the future is going to be and basically closing off off all possibilities to improving the situation, which I just think is not helpful. 
yeah, I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that. I, I do think he's coming from a position of feeling, you can tell reading this piece, he's coming from a place of really immense sadness, almost like he was sort of naive and feels now totally disillusioned and cynical. And these things can sometimes be cyclical, but I understand the emotional place where he's writing from of really feeling like I'm not going to lie to my kids anymore the way I feel like maybe I've been lied to or the way I kind of lied to myself. Okay, we'll leave it at that, but there's lots more to discuss. Let's get into topic number two. What do you got? Last week, famous Jewish comedian Larry David hosted Saturday Night Live, and he stirred up a bit of controversy with his opening monologue. Let's listen to a piece of it. You know, I've always, always been obsessed with women, and I've often wondered, if I'd, if I'd grown up in Poland when Hitler came to power and was sent to a concentration camp, would I still be checking out women in the camp? <laughs> I think I would, you know? Hey, Shlomo, Shlomo, look at that one over there by Barrett Zayt. Oh my God, is she gorgeous? Oh, oh I've had my eye on her for weeks. Yeah, I, I, I've been, I, I'd like to go up and say something to her. Of course, the problem is, there are no good opening lines in a concentration camp. <laughs> How's it going? They treating you okay? <laughs> so, as you might imagine, there was a lot of backlash to that. One of the most prominent uh, people to criticize David was Jonathan Greenblatt, the CEO of the Anti-Defamation League. He tweeted the next morning, watched hashtag Larry David hashtag SNL monologue this AM. He managed to be offensive, insensitive, and unfunny all at the same time. Quite a feat. The question that I want to raise is, is it ever okay to make a Holocaust joke? And if the answer to that is yes, the follow-up question is, when is it okay and when is it not okay? What do you think, Rifki? The idea of Larry David's monologue here, the truth is I didn't find it so bad because as I was listening to it, I was thinking very sort of like very critically because I was nervous immediately. But to me, it felt very clear that the butt of the joke was himself. He was saying, ah. I have no control. I look at women. No matter where I am, I look at women. Yes, this place is deeply inappropriate for me to be looking at women, and yet I still am. I'm a moron. That's to me what came across. It didn't come across that he was making fun of Jews or making fun of the Holocaust. Right. It, it skirts a line, but I think he was okay. I don't know. What do you think? Well, so, I mean, I, I guess I'll start by saying that I was offended by the monologue. And I also didn't think it was funny. And I think when Jonathan Greenblatt says... Uh, you know, added that in that it was, it was unfunny. Uh, he actually was criticized for saying that. The, the forward wrote an article and the headline was, it's not the ADL's job to tell comedians what's funny. I would counter, it's not the forward's job to tell the ADL what their job is. But it's Uri's job to tell the forward. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I think, the, I think whether or not it's funny actually is relevant. And to me, an, an additional element is there's sort of like an inverse graph, like relationship between the amount or the level of uh, inappropriateness 
or sensitivity of the actual topic versus how funny the joke is. If you're gonna joke about an issue that is really, really sensitive, you have to be really funny. The joke has to be really clever in order to make that okay. And if the joke is mediocre in terms of its funniness, it's just gonna fall flat and it's gonna make people uncomfortable. And what do you accomplish right. by like telling that joke? Like he's clearly trying to make people uncomfortable, but he's hoping that well, what he can do is put them in this sort of in this nervous place, but then also the punchline. It has to be funny. That. The <laughs> truth is I thought it was kind of funny. I mean, it wasn't, look, was it like innovative, clever, mind-blowing humor? No. And obviously Larry, Day, I mean, we're, we're both big fans so, of Kirby right. enthusiasm. What I wanted to bring up was actually, I think he himself has done a better job of this in the past. And so I want to play a clip of um, something from Kirby Enthusiasm, Larry David's show. Um, you know, there are actually a few instances where he sort of dabbled in uh, Holocaust humor. The, there's the famous Survivor episode. I think it's my favorite episode. It was very Kirby. funny. Um, but there's actually a different one that I, that I just wanted to play here. Yo, what were you whistling? Hello, Dolly? No, it was Wagner. Oh, was it? Yeah. You, sir, $100. I want to know what a Jew is whistling Wagner Do you for, want to when know? he was one of the great anti-Semites of the world. You know what you are? What am I? You're a self-loathing Jew. Am I? Oh, well, yes, 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 Jewish. I do hate myself, you, yes. but it has nothing to do with being Jewish, okay? So I happen to think that that, that joke was very funny. I, I know he actually borrowed that line from Woody Allen. Woody Allen used that joke in okay, one well, of his movies. Well, that makes me hate it, so thank you. Okay, good. To me, the difference is that one was funny, and what he said on Saturday Night Live just wasn't funny. Right. Let's let's talk for a second about why people are offended by these jokes. And it's not just Holocaust. You know, it's the same similar type of thing with, you know, rape jokes, slavery jokes. This actually isn't the first time that Saturday Night Live has gotten in trouble for something like this. I remember a couple years ago, Leslie Jones, who is black, did a whole routine on Weekend Update relating to slavery that many people were very, very offended by because she sort of made light of it. And and I think what these things have in common, the reason why people get so concerned and upset about it is because they are worried, and let's say specifically in the case of the Holocaust, I think a lot of Jews are worried, and f I think for good reason, that the the concept of the Holocaust and the memory of the Holocaust, as the years go by, as the survivors die out, is getting lost and getting watered down. And that is a concern that a lot of Jews have. And I think a lot of people would say, when you make jokes like that, make a joke about being in a concentration camp and picking up women, what your opening line is going to be. So, you know, you, you want to assume that people have a baseline understanding, like the Holocaust was terrible, concentration camps were hell. So you have that in the context, and that's why the joke is funny, because of that crazy juxtaposition. But you know what? That's a big assumption. Not everybody knows how terrible the Holocaust was. Many people in America don't really know much about the Holocaust at all. I would, I would, you know, I hope they, I hope I'm wrong about that. I don't that. know, you could hear in the audience at SNL that they were so deeply uncomfortable. Okay. Clearly they were thinking, wow, I cannot believe he's doing this. They were thinking about the gravity yes, of the joke. I, I think when, when you have people who are upset about it, the, that's the main reason they're upset. They're worried about about the legacy and memory of the Holocaust and how people perceive it. And, you know, as a Jew, I'm very sensitive to that. And I guess that combined with the fact that I just didn't find the joke funny are the reasons why I was offended by it. And I think the ADL and Jonathan Greenblatt were justified in their critique. And we might get into this in future uh, segments, but the forward was wildly <laughs> inappropriate in deciding to critique the ADL instead of critiquing yeah, I mean, Larry that, David. That's, 
there's plenty of what to say on the forward. The truth is that at the end of the day, obviously humor is subjected to a certain extent. I did think it was funny. I thought it was critical that in the joke, the butt of the joke was clearly himself. And I think that sort of separate self-deprecating humor is so much a part of who Larry David is. And maybe that made me dislike it a little bit less because I have sort of a soft spot for the way that Larry David presents right. his jokes which 95% of them are self-deprecating. Right. In the past, for the most part, with the show and, and his comedy, he's stayed just clear of that line, and in this case, he crossed it, and that's why I was upset, and I didn't think it was funny. Well, if you haven't yet seen the monologue, we would definitely encourage you to watch it and to read the article that we talked about in our first segment. We'll leave links to both of those in the show notes of the episode, and I think that's it. Larry. Hello, Rabbi. Hello. Hello. This is Colby. Hi, Larry. Nice to meet you. Where's this survivor? What? He, he's the survivor. From the, from the television show. Survivor. I was over in Australia. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of Seinfeld. <laughs> he really is. Yeah. Boy, I'll tell you, that's a very interesting story. Let me tell you. I was in a concentration camp. You never even suffered one minute in your life compared to what I went through. Look, I'm saying, I'm saying we spent 42 days trying to survive. We had very little rations, no snacks. Snacks? We, what are you talking snacks? We didn't eat sometimes for a week, for a month. Don't. We weighed nothing. I went from home. I mean, I couldn't even work out when I was over there. They certainly didn't have a gym. Uh, what? I mean, I wore my sneakers you? out, and then the next thing you know, I've got a pair of flip-flops. Flip-flops? We slip on the ground, on the dirt. Okay, 118 degrees during the day, 98 at night with 98% humidity. 45 degrees below zero. Have you even seen the show? Did you ever see our show? It was called The Holocaust. Before we go, we have one last segment called Did You Read It? Did you read The New York Times? Yes. The New York Observer? Yes. Washington Post? Yes. Wall Street Journal? Of course I read it. Did you read that steampunk article in Boingware? I did not like the end of it. This week, I want to tell you guys about an article I read in Wired that blew my mind. It's called I Forgot My Pin, an epic tale of losing $30,000 in Bitcoin. The editor-in-chief of Wired magazine, which is a tech magazine, writes about buying $3,000 worth of Bitcoin, which if you guys are following sort of the rise of Bitcoin and blockchain technology, is now worth, at this point, a few years later, $30,000. Because he wanted to take the money off of the internet, where he was nervous about it getting hacked and things like that, he put it on sort of a hardware wallet, but then he lost his pin. And he goes through sort of the harrowing story There's of no trying way to, to get like, that money back. Forgot my password. Nope. Email me anyone. <laughs> <laughs> That's the point. They want to make it as inaccessible as possible because mm -hmm. they don't want people to get it. So it's a whole complicated process. It was a fascinating article, but I think more fascinating is thinking about sort of the larger implications. Um, I'm not an expert, but I've been following a lot about Bitcoin, blockchain, cryptocurrencies in general, especially in the last year and the the mega rise of uh of um, these, the worth mm -hmm. of all of these things. And I think it's pretty interesting and pretty, pretty cool and pretty important to think about. So I would really recommend this article published in Wired this past month. My Did You Read It is an article in this week's New Yorker called Can a Robot Join the Faith? by Avi Steinberg. And I'll just make a note, this is not the Avi Steinberg who writes cartoons for The New Yorker, who is a friend of mine. This is a different Avi Steinberg who writes articles for The New Yorker. So it turns out that a robot has been granted full state citizenship for the first time in human history. And the country that has granted citizenship to this robot is none other than that bastion of liberalism, Saudi Arabia. So the robot's name is Sophia Robot, which 
Very clever. Yeah, it is. <laughs> but Steinberg writes, making Sophia a citizen, some commentators noted, effectively gave her more rights than most Saudi women. It was also an insult to the kingdom's minority groups, especially to migrant laborers who have been denied citizenship for generations, not to mention that Saudi women were just given the right to drive cars about six weeks ago. The article actually then goes on to discuss, can a robot join a religion? Can a robot be a rabbi? Can a robot be an imam? And, uh, you know, I'm a sucker for any AI-related discussions, so uh, I'd recommend you giving this article a read. Okay, will do. And that's our show. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. If you guys have any thoughts or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Just email us at talkingtalklistpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you to the band Triple Threat Trio featuring Rage Brigade. They wrote the music at the beginning and the end of the show just for us. And uh, you can check them out on MySpace. See you guys next week. Bye.